Hear the word of God from Ephesians third chapter where he'll be preaching from. It says this, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow ears, uh, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. That's some good word right there. Amen. Let the people with God say amen the Word of God. There's many things you can learn by doing a PhD, but I want to say to you what a gift it is to be in this body with you and to be able to learn this year with you before we go out to plant this church, especially in light of the fact that we're turning to a passage this morning that talks about unity and the way that true unity is found in the gospel. Being a member of this church is something that I do not take for granted. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you this morning. Will you pray with me before we turn to God's word? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you speak to us, that you don't stay far from us, but that in your word you have given us a picture of who you are, what you've done to draw us into relationship with you, and how you want us to live. And so I pray this morning that we would hear those things and that you, would, that you would challenge us. And as you challenge us, that you would also comfort us. And that you would draw us more deeply into relationship with you through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as Pastor Howard said just a few minutes ago, we've been simultaneously walking through two different series. One on 1 Kings and the other on Ephesians. And this morning... It's almost like an illustration that God actually has a plan. We believe that, but sometimes it's hard to see it. And this morning, we actually have the themes from both of those series converging in one passage. Last week in chapter 12, we heard a sermon on unity in the midst of abuse of power. And here this morning in Ephesians chapter 3, we have a passage that focuses on the mystery of the gospel. And along the way, what we see is that one of the primary aspects of the mystery of the gospel is that people from all sorts of different backgrounds are brought together in one family, 
the body of Christ. And that the way that God's power works in that world is different from how it works in the world. And so it's a beautiful opportunity to see this morning how the Bible is one story from Genesis to Revelation that fits together and, and tells uh, one big picture. So the theme this morning is the mystery of the gospel. And as I was thinking about this passage this week and thinking about what it is that Paul's doing as he describes this mystery, I was taken back to my own love, especially as a child, for mystery stories. And I don't know if you have the same love for mysteries, but for me when I was growing up, I could not get enough of the Hardy Boys, uh, even Nancy Drew. Do you remember the Bobsy Twins? Uh, Encyclopedia Brown, Sherlock Holmes, like you name a mystery. And uh, for me, that was something that I loved. And I was trying to think of what is it about those stories that causes me to love them so much. And I, I, one of the things is probably that there's this story and all the pieces sort of fit together and you can see that there's a connection. You kind of suspect it, you're building hunches as you go, but you don't have the full picture. And then finally at the end, there's that point where there's the reveal and all of a sudden, all the things that you've been wondering, how do they fit together, it just hits you in the face and it's obvious. And there's something about that experience of this thing that you've been building as a puzzle coming together that I love. Uh, I remember the first time I ever saw the movie, The Usual Suspects. Do you know this movie? Uh, and that point at the end of the movie where the police officer realizes the true identity of Kaiser Sose. And the coffee mug falls to the ground and shatters. And it's an unbelievable scene. And there's that experience that you have of, of all these clues fitting together for the first time. It's powerful. And so I think that this passage that we're getting ready to look at ties a lot of things together. And it says that the gospel is a mystery, that it doesn't make natural sense, that the fact that it's possible that God's people, that all, these pe all the people in this room, the people that God's calling together could actually form one body, that does not make natural sense. And the only way that could happen is if there's some piece of the puzzle that we don't know naturally. And Paul talks about that piece of the puzzle in this passage. One of the things I think that's so important to emphasize as we move into this passage is that we live in a world that has done its best to explain away mystery, to take mystery out of the equation. We want an explanation. And it doesn't matter if it's scientific or philosophical or whatever. We want to know how things work. And the Christian faith is no different from this. And I might even dare to say the Christian faith in America is especially guilty of this. We want a faith that makes, that seems natural, that doesn't challenge us, and it makes us comfortable. And what Paul is going to tell us in this passage is that that's not how the gospel works. And how the gospel works is, in fact, not natural, but a mystery. Okay, so this is where we're going. In verses 1 through 6, we're going to talk about what the mystery of the gospel is. Paul gives us three things to help us see what the mystery is. And then in the second half of the passage, Paul goes a little bit deeper, and he gives us two different aspects of the mystery. One, focusing on God's power, which is different from natural power. And then secondly, he talks about God's glory, which is different from natural glory. So that's where we're going this morning. First, to dive into the mystery of the gospel, Paul gives us three aspects of this mystery. He doesn't explain it away, 
but he start, sort of draws the outlines. He helps us to see what the mystery is. And verse 6 is the clue. You can look with me, if you have it printed out or in your Bible, you can look with me at verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6. It says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, that's one clue, members of the same body, that's two clues, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Those are the three clues. You have heirs with Christ Jesus. You have members with one another, and you have partakers in the promises with one another. Those three things. And I know we've got some seminarians in the room, so I'm going to use the theological vocabulary that I know you seminarians love. In this passage, the three clues are Christological, ecclesiological, and eschatological. And for, for the rest of us, what that means is they're focused on Jesus, they're focused on the church, and they're focused on the promises, the future. They're Christological on Jesus. They're ecclesiological, they're focused on the church. And they're eschatological, the mystery is focused on these promises. So those are the three things. And we want to think a little bit about these things. First, this mystery is a mystery because we are not saved by ourselves, which is what we naturally think. We naturally think we're good enough. Or if we think that we're, there's something wrong with us or we think we're sinners, we think that we have what it takes to make it right. And what this passage teaches us, especially in verses 4 and 5, is that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves, but rather Jesus has done the work to save us. And that idea is reiterated time after time after time after time after time after time in this passage. Uh, seven times. Did I say it seven times? I, I lost track. Seven times Paul uses the language of gift, grace, or given. It's been given to you. It's been given to you. It's been given to you. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. It's a gift. Seven times. He wants us to see that there is nothing that human beings who are sinners can do to save themselves because they fall short of a holy God who is perfect and righteous, and we have rejected him, and we've gone our own way. We cannot be saved by what we do. We're, sa we're saved by what Jesus does. And I think the reason, I don't think, I know, the reason that this is so important to emphasize is that our temptation is consistently to think that we can save ourselves. Or even worse, maybe, to think that there is nothing in this world that we need to be saved from, that this world is all there is, right? We forget all the time, every day, every week, that there's something more to life than this world. In fact, if you even think back, there are some people who have taken this passage and so emphasized the social part of it, that we're united to one another, that the other part of it, that the reason we're united in the first place is that we're united with Christ and we have hope in eternal promises gets left out of the picture. So we're going to get to a minute to the part where we say, yes, this gospel very much does have social implications. And you might even call it a social gospel. I hope I don't get in trouble for saying that. But we don't get there unless we first go to Jesus and the promises. So the, the hope that we have of unity with one another is grounded fundamentally on Jesus and what Jesus has done. Uh, one of the things the Bible does that I love, 
is that it talks about these things from every different angle. So in this passage, we get an angle where it just summarizes the mystery in verse 6. And look look what it says. What does it say the mystery is in verse 6? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, right? That the Gentiles and the Jews, God's people in the Old Testament, together with all those who hear his promises and believe, are one body. This passage emphasizes that social reality. But also in the Bible, also written by Paul, in another letter to the church uh, this, that we have, is called the, the letter to the Colossians, Paul says this, all these same things. He uses all the same language. The language that we've just read in the passage, he uses the language of mystery, of stewardship, that it's hidden, now it's been revealed. All the language, it's almost like he's taken the same notes, and then he wrote one letter over here and one letter over there. But what he says in Colossians, in chapter 1, verse 27, is that this mystery, which is Christ in you, is the hope of glory. And so what we have in the Bible is a refusal to separate the hope of the gospel and salvation in Christ and what that means for our relationships with one another. Those things are connected. The Christological is connected to the ecclesiological. The Jesus part is connected to our life together and our relationships with one another. So it starts with the Christological. But second, and then it moves on to the ecclesiological, our life in the body, what it means that we have relationships with one another through Christ. And that's what he talks about in verses 1 and 2. Now, you might not notice it when you first look at verses 1 and 2 that this is what Paul's doing. But I want you to look at verse 1. There's something that's really funny about this passage. Do you notice how verse 1 ends with a hyphen? It's a dash. He gets cut off. And so basically, the entire 13 verses that we are reading and preaching on this morning are Paul's like, oh, wait a minute. And he's got to say all of these things. And he doesn't actually get to his point until verse 14. So if you had a Bible in front of you, you could look at verse 14. And what happens there is he he continues his thought. And he says, again, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, and he prays. The whole point of this entire passage is to lead Paul to the point where he prays for the people. The mystery of the gospel leads him to serve others. And he does the same thing. Verse 2 is another clue for that. He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. First of all, what's a steward? Someone that serves, right? They take something and they steward it. They, They serve with it. So assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, For what? For you. This gospel is not given to us just for us. It is given to us for us. But it's not just given to us for us. It's given to us for one another. This gospel is a gospel that calls us to live life together, to sacrifice for one another, and to serve one another. These promises, this mystery, is not just about Jesus and us but about us and one another in Jesus. Why is that a mystery? I don't think it's that hard to, to, to figure out why that's a mystery. Our natural desire, right, is not to serve other people. What is our natural desire? We want to serve ourselves. And this passage says the gospel is not just for you, it's for one another. That's the second aspect of the mystery. The third aspect is that it's an unfolding story. 
just like a mystery. Imagine what it would have been like for the people of Israel in the Old Testament who are waiting for Jesus to be revealed. They don't know what the Savior is going to be like. And so Paul, in this passage, is finally getting to explain to them, this Jesus who has lived and died, this is how he fulfills all of those things in the Old Testament. And just like the people of Israel had to wait, in a very similar way, we have to wait. The promises that will be ours of a world where sin is no more, and Christ wipes away every tear, and all people who are his people are perfectly united to him, we wait for that, and we don't know exactly, how, what is that going to look like? To us, it's a mystery. So in each of these respects, the gospel being founded on Jesus and not ourselves, the gospel being not just about ourselves, but our relationships with one another, and the gospel being about promises that we don't experience the fulfillment of yet, in all of those things, it challenges our natural understandings. And in that sense, it's a mystery. So I've been wrestling with this week. And I've been trying to think, well, okay, so we believe all these things. How do they apply to us? What, what difference does it make that we believe these things? How does it challenge us? What hope does it give us? And the thing that I keep coming back to is that when we are at home in this world and our faith is shaped by our natural assumptions, we do not see the full picture of the gospel. And specifically thinking about the main point of this passage, which is about how the gospel draws us together in Christ and those promises, but draws us together. If we're just operating according to our natural assumptions, we want all of our natural characteristics to be the thing that unites us. And what we forget is that the only thing that will truly unite us is Jesus Christ. This is something that's been a gradual process for me to learn. I th and I don't think that that's unique to me. That's something that all of us are at some place along the way on. Some of y'all know this, but we're all still learning this. Some of y'all are new in this. We're all at some different point along the way. But I remember being in seminary and living in Boston. And we had this friend, and she understood this in a way that opened my eyes and made me realize I did not. Uh, we had just gotten to know her. We talked to her maybe a few times. And then there were these several occasions where we would be in the city and we would see her and feel like we don't know her that well. We've just kind of met, we're new friends, our relationship's not that deep. And she would come running up and give us a hug and say, I'm so grateful to see you, my brother in Christ. And I, I, I wondered, what is it about her that helps her to see that we have more in common with other Christians than we do with other people in the world who are not Christians? And I think part of it might be that she was from Korea. And for some reason, with, for her being in America, where she was not surrounded by other people like her, it made her realize that our fundamental unity is in Jesus and not in all those other things. I, maybe many other things. Probably she was much wiser. Many other things, right? But, but certainly this reality that she experienced a natural longing for something that helped her to understand that that natural longing couldn't be fulfilled in this world because she didn't have any of those things and could only be found in Christ. 
So thinking through that for us. What do we find our fundamental unity in, in this room? And I actually think this is an especially important question for us to ask, because this is a room where we look around and say, we're kind of different, right? We might be tempted to be prideful in this. And any time that we're tempted to be prideful in this, there might be something we're missing. What is our identity in? Is it in Jesus? Or is it in Jesus plus something else? There's some questions that are printed in your bulletin. I'd love for you to think through those more deeply throughout this afternoon and maybe even as you gather together in community groups this week. But what is our unity in? Do our, is our fundamental unity in Jesus or is it in something else? That's what this passage has challenged me to think, to ask, to question. So secondly, Paul moves on beyond talking about the mystery in general. And now he's going to develop these two more specific ideas. One about the power of God and one about the glory of God. And the way that he describes power is so different from how we think about power, how we naturally think about power. He starts this transition in verse 7. He says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. So he, he, he points out that he's going to be transitioning to talk about power, by the working of his power. Well, what does God's power look like? How does it work? And verse 8 tells us loudly and clearly that it is not a natural power. Because how does Paul describe himself in verse 8? He's the least. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. Think about this. Paul, the least, the persecutor of Gentiles, is given this grace to go and preach to the Gentiles. And one thing that's kind of fun to know, if you actually open this up in Greek, he makes up a word, because there's no word that exists to describe how low he is on the totem pole. So the word, if you wanted to capture it in English, would almost be something like leaster. He's less than the least. He's the leaster. That's how low he is. He, naturally speaking, has no right to be in this role to have this message, to have these relationships. And think about it. Paul, the persecutor of the Gentiles, is now the preacher to the Gentiles. If there's anything that gives me any hope for planting a intercultural church, it's a verse like this that says people who are different can learn from each other. This verse teaches us that the gospel is not about natural power, but it's God's power, and he works through weakness. Amen. I like that. He goes on, and he gives two different characteristics. One's in verse 8. He talks about the unsearchable riches. You could never know fully or deeply or entirely. You could never plumb the depths of the power of God the knowledge of God. You could never know it fully. There's an invitation there to study it more deeply, to know it, to love it, to grow in it. It's unsearchable riches. And then in verse 10, he describes it as a manifold wisdom. Think about that. What is, it, what is a manifold wisdom? Manifold wisdom is a wisdom that's characterized by many different facets, many different angles. You could almost think of a garden 
that has every different kind of flower and species and tree and shrub and bush and the, the total effect of all of those different flowers and plants together is beautiful in a way that if it was just one kind of plant, it wouldn't be. And so what he's saying in verse 10 is that through the church, through this gathering together of all of these different people from all these different backgrounds, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly place. God displays his wisdom in this diverse group gathered together, united in the gospel. And don't miss the second half of the verse. Who does this church confront? Not just natural authorities, but the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. If you want to know how the church confronts Satan, it's by gathering together people who, naturally speaking, are enemies from one another into one place because they love Jesus. The power of the gospel confronts our natural selfishness, our desire to be around people who are like ourselves. The power of the gospel confronts the view of this world that says only natural power is real power. Now let's keep thinking about that. Because we're living in a time where when we think about power, this doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, right now nobody's super optimistic. The power of the gospel is greater than the powers of this world. The power of the gospel is not just greater than governmental powers or authorities. The power of the gospel is greater than any authority in this world. We are all in relationships of authority. And some of us are in relationships where there's good authority. But many of us are in relationships where there is not good authority. Where there are powers that at work against us or that oppress us. And right now I want to talk to some of these young people in the room because I think sometimes young people experience this most viscerally at school. It feels like the only real power is the view of your friends or the view of somebody outside of you. And I want to tell you that the power of, God, of the gospel is greater than those powers and that the Lord has promised that there will be a day when all things will be made right. It's not just relationships with friendships. Even in our families, there are so many of our relationships that are broken because of misuse of power with parents and children, with husbands and wives. There are so many powers in this world, and we need to hear this morning that the power of the gospel is greater than those powers, that one day God is going to set those wrong relationships right, that he will return to judge it. And in the meantime, we are to hope in that and to persevere in the midst of the great suffering that comes in these awful relationships and these broken powers. The power of the gospel is greater than the powers of this world. It's not just power, though, that's different. It's not just power that's a mystery. It's a different kind of glory. He starts to develop this idea in verse 11, and it takes him a while to get there. He's, kind of, he's a slow buildup in verse 11, and by the time he gets to verse 13, then he says it. In verse 13, he concludes by saying, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. But look how he builds up to that. Start back in verse 11. 
He says this, all of this that he's been talking about, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. All of God's glory is grounded in his eternal purpose and plan. God has a plan to restore what is wrong. It's a plan that we can trust because Jesus has come and risen from the dead. Imagine what the people of Israel would have thought. How can these things be right? We're oppressed. And imagine, we know what the disciples thought after Jesus died. They thought that that all hope was lost, that their teacher had been killed. They didn't understand. And then Jesus rose from the dead. We have this hope that's part of God's eternal plan that should give us the ability to trust in a different kind of power and a different kind of glory. It keeps building. God's glory, where it ends, benefits us in at least two ways. It benefits us personally, and it benefits us as a group. Look at verse 11. And then into verse 12, actually. It says, in in verse 12, it says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We personally have access to God through Jesus Christ. The God who is holy and perfect and powerful and is so holy, perfect, and powerful that in the Old Testament, when he dwelled in a temple, no one could even go in because he was so holy that they might be destroyed. We, through Christ, have access to come into the presence of that God, that glory. That is a mystery. But it's not just for us. It's for us in service of one another. Because it's not just that we have access and confidence. Look what Paul says in verse 13. Again, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which is your glory. In this passage, Paul's suffering is for the glory of God's people. And he's worried that they're going to lose heart, that they're going to see his suffering, and they're not going to understand that we are called as the body of Christ to suffer for one another. I think it's easy for us to take this passage and to treat it as this one-off, this idea of suffering is just this thing that Paul says in this passage. And what I want us to do right now is to just spend some time listening to to the countless passages in the scriptures where the suffering of the church and its leaders and its people is described as being in service for the body of Christ. And what I hope this will do is it will challenge our desire to be comfortable And it will give us a desire to suffer for one another and to serve one another. So listen when Paul describes his ministry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 9, he says, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Their suffering and their perseverance in it is a spectacle to the world. It's powerful. It is a testimony. And he goes on. 
We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Listen to what he says to the church. We are fools, but now you are wise because of our foolishness. And he goes on, he keeps doing the same thing. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, listen to how he responds to suffering. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul is willing to become nothing in order to serve his brothers and sisters. Listen to what he says in chapter 12. He says, talking of God, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And if you know Paul's story, you know that he has a right to say these things because we know what happened to him. And I actually want to read this list of things that happened to him in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He gives the list in the middle of this conversation where he's telling them about these false servants who've come into them to serve themselves, to make themselves look good. And he's contrasting his own ministry with theirs. And this is what he says. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. And I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. And he goes on, he gives this list. Five times he received 40 lashes, less one. It was believed then that the 40 lashes would kill someone. Five times he receives 40, less one, just to the point of death. Three times I was beaten with rods. I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. He undergoes dangerous journeys, robbers, Jews, Gentiles, the city, the wilderness, sea, false brothers. And this is how he summarizes it in verse 27. He says, in toil, in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. You start to notice the theme here? He summarizes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Here's a one-verse summary. Talking about Jesus, Paul says, For Jesus was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ says, die to yourself and take up your cross and love your brothers and sisters, not to earn your salvation, but because you follow a savior 
who has saved you by dying for you. And so therefore, we're to have the same mind as our Savior. And so this morning, whether you are in the midst of significant suffering, and I actually know that that many of you are, whether you are in the midst of significant suffering, or whether your struggle right now is to undergo the daily small sufferings that come by pursuing hard conversations with the ones that you love, or by putting up with the consistent and persistent obnoxiousness of your brothers and sisters in Christ, or by reaching out to the person that you know doesn't have other people reaching out to them, whether your sufferings are the significant hard ones where we're oppressed, or the the daily, consistent, smaller ones that make living life as a Christian difficult, you need to hear that the glory of Christ is not found in self-surface. It's found in dying to self and serving your brothers and sisters. The power of the gospel is displayed when we pursue that kind of glory, and that is a mystery. And so this, this morning, I actually want to conclude in the same place that Pastor Howard concluded last week, in Philippians chapter 2. Because this passage takes these themes and it summarizes them in a way that is powerful. So we're going to read this and then we're going to pray together that the Lord would give us this mind that is ours in Christ Jesus. If you want to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 5. Notice on the one hand the mind and on the other hand the glory in this passage. Chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in a human form, he humbled himself himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, hear the glory. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is a mystery. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that we are people who want to take the mystery of the gospel and explain it away, that we're people who want to be comfortable. We don't want to suffer. We don't want glory that comes through suffering. So, Father, we confess that this is a mystery and we know that we don't naturally want it, but we also know that by your Holy Spirit, through faith, that you have given us new hearts, hearts that can grasp this, that can long for this glory, You have, by your power, changed us 
And we can serve one another in this body. And so I pray this morning that you would comfort us by knowing that, that the promises of the gospel will one day be fulfilled. And in the meantime, that you have given us all that we need to follow you as we experience the powers and the difficulties and the sufferings of this life. So I pray all those things in Jesus' name. Amen.